Hey everybody, welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. I'm Jessica DePotsy, and for the next at least 53 shows, I'm going to take you through this series that covers a spectrum of negative patterns in the human experience. All right, well, I hope you guys are all having a wonderful day. I'm writing to you on a warm, amazing summer Thursday from Manitoulin Island, Ontario. And if you hear any banging around during this recording, Jeff is downstairs cleaning while I'm avoiding cleaning to record this. <laughs> uh, we have some friends staying at our cottage for the week with their new baby to enjoy the lake and our chickens while we take kiteboarding lessons at Sable Beach celebrating my sister-in-law's birthday. Happy birthday, Jen. So that'll be fun. But first, you know, cleaning needs to happen and all that boring stuff. I'll definitely be practicing the presence game from the last episode because I tend to be a little ADD and a deep house clean really isn't on my list of things that lights me up. Anyway, I wanted to thank you guys for listening to my show here. I just hit 10,000 downloads a few days ago and that felt really nice and affirming to know that there are people like you out there who love shadow work as much as I do. And extra thanks to those of you who have left me a rating and review or uh, started to follow me on Instagram and said, hi, it's just a pleasure to connect with like-minded people out there in the world. So for today's submission, I'm going to do something a little bit different than usual, sort of like the five core wounds episode. I'm going to go through the seven layers of conflict coined by Jennifer Russell and Brian Franklin. And I'm going to do this in a few parts because there's a lot of great information. I mentioned on the last show that I'd actually be talking about selflessness and selfishness. But I did a pivot on that because this just felt a little bit more timely. But I will get to that one as soon as we're done with this shadow work on conflict. Now, before I get into the layers of conflict, I wanted to let you know that our self-discovery, self-mastery course for men is going to be open on September 1st through the 11th, 2020. It's called The Trials. We open it up every quarter and we do very little marketing. So we have a tight group of individuals going through it and they can get the most impact out of the program. If you'd like to learn more about that and get two free lessons from the course, you can go to wayoftrials.com. I opened up access to those lessons because I think it's only fair and it makes sense that you can see what you get before you commit to it. And even if you're not feeling like it's your time to commit to a 12-week course, you can still head over there and get the lessons. They're really good. Aaron Guyat's lesson is on physiological stress and how different forms of stress or force can be beneficial to your physiological performance, your physical performance. And Rick Alexander talks about how you can use your value system to design your life. So yeah, really good stuff. You can get those lessons at wayoftrials.com. Okay, so back to today's shadow work submission. We are talking about conflict. Conflict tends to break out whenever two or more people agree to identify with their emotional state. And it can be interpreted either through relationships or through collectively through communities. And if we break down the Latin origin of the word, con means together and flict is from the Latin word fligieti. I took Latin in high school because, whoops, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Nope, that didn't happen. Flict means to beat or strike. So conflict means to strike or fight together. I'm sure you don't need a Latin breakdown to know that conflict often feels like you're striking each other with words or even literally, but it's nice to get these origins, I think. 
you can see conflict popping up from situations that are as innocent as your husband misplacing your keys to your neighbor complaining about your music being too loud. And often when you find yourself on the other side of conflict, whether it's been resolved or just dampened due to lack of attention, you might wonder why in the world that little, almost insignificant issue got you so pissed off or hurt. Well, identifying with your emotional state has differing levels of density to them. And if I could say that another way, how you identify with your emotional state can be ranked on a scale of consciousness. And that's not to say that if you're a highly conscious and super aware human, you don't experience the lower levels of conflict. You do, but it does make it easier to identify when you're going through that so that you can choose to pull yourself out of it if you want. Now, the seven layers of conflict were, I believe, coined by Jennifer Russell and Brian Franklin. They put together research from other amazing sources to package a level up of our awareness for our own conflict resolution. So all of the conflict you feel will touch on these seven layers all at once. But identifying them at the layer level is really helpful so that you can see all the facets of your conflict and get down to the root problem and turn that layer, that that lump of coal into a diamond to find that lesson and heal that part of you so you can move on, transcend that conflict pattern that keeps showing up again and again. And that's often why a lot of us are drawn to shadow work is that we're very aware of our patterns. So this is a great way to break pattern. And as you make your way through the layers of conflict, you're going from predominantly past-oriented experiences to present and future-oriented consciousness. And so for the sake of time and digestibility, on this submission, I'm going to go through just the first two layers, the first two past-oriented layers of conflict, and then we'll cover the rest in upcoming episodes. Now, when I say these layers of conflict that we're going to go through today are past-oriented, I mean that the situation that's happening to you in the present moment is bringing to the surface parts of yourself that you've long forgotten. At the first level, this conflict pattern originated way before you were even born and is completely invisible to your conscious mind, but still has this grip on how you perceive the world. And as we go through the layers, they become more recent and personal to you, more current to the present moment, but they're still based on your past and inhibit you from living today as your best self in this current situation. So you can sense that these past-oriented layers of conflict are bubbling up to the surface when you can feel or be aware of using less mature strategies for dealing with whatever's going on. Like maybe you feel like you want to break something or you just start yelling and throwing a tantrum or you want to abandon anything that's happening mentally and then comfort yourself with food. These are all signals of regression. And well, if you're comforting yourself with food like you did in the past, these are all signs of regression that are showing you that there's something from a moment or moments past that are still pulling the strings on your psyche today. And as we move into the more future-oriented layers of conflict or present and future-oriented layers of conflict, you can get out of that muck and start accessing your wiser self to see the gift that's hidden in the conflict and begin to rewrite your neural pathways. If that's a little confusing, I promise it'll make more sense as I get into each one. So let's just do that now. Layer one is the most past-oriented And we really want to strive to be less and less influenced by this. And as we go through two, three, four, five, six, seven, layer seven would be the wisest layer of conflict management. But again, there's nothing wrong with finding yourself in layer one. It just takes a bit more deep diving to understand the nature of it. And it can be a more dense and heavy place to operate out of. 
So the first layer is pain in the collective consciousness. Second is universal polarities and energy patterns. Third is personal historical pain. Fourth is power control and projection. Fifth is unexpressed needs and unmet expectations. Sixth is present perfection and future vision. And finally, seventh is dharmic themes. Again, thank you to Jennifer Russell and Brian Franklin for putting this all together for us. I was taught this by them in 2016 when I went to their Evolving Love Workshop. And if they ever do these again, I rate it a billion kajillion stars and I wish everyone could go. Alrighty, let's dive into that first layer. The first layer of conflict is pain in the collective consciousness, and this has to do with the ancient past. Now, if when you hear phrases like collective consciousness and you want to start to tune out, I really don't blame you. There are quite a few words that people will throw around these days without really knowing how to use them, and I think that collective consciousness is one of those examples. It drains the power out of the word, unfortunately, so I'd like to define it before I move on. Collective consciousness is a fundamental sociological concept that refers to the set of shared beliefs, ideas, attitudes, and knowledge that are common to a social group or society. The collective consciousness informs our sense of belonging and identity and our behavior. And it was coined by Emil Durkheim in, well, he was a sociologist and a philosopher who was born in the mid-1800s. And he stated that these shared beliefs, ideas, and moral attitudes are passed down from generation to generation, both through story and action, but also biologically in our DNA. It's believed that genes store our past narratives, beliefs, and wounding from multiple generations dating back thousands of years. Now, talking about the genetic pass down of memory for a moment, there are some studies that hint at this possibility, specifically looking at how the environment we live in can make genetic changes. And it's not a far stretch to say that the Earth's surface, our environment, can affect our culture. I mean, there are even scientists who study this phenomenon known as cultural geography. So a study in 2017, researchers at the European Molecular Biology Organization in Spain did a study with nematodes. And actually, little side story here, Nematode is this week where my rabbit hole began, but not in the quantum biology world, thank God. This time, some weird feeling popped up when I read the word nematode, and maybe it did the same for you, I don't know. I was like, why do I have some memory with nematodes? I had this vague thought that it had to do with some kids show that I watched way, way, way back. So I just Googled nematode show, and one of my favorite childhood cartoons popped up. Do you any of you remember Doug on Nickelodeon? Doug Funny was this balding kid who wore a green sweater vest and he had an alter ego which was quail man who wore his underwear on the outside of his pants his cargo shorts and a belt on his head anyway episode one of this legendary cartoon was when doug tries to catch a nematode to impress his new friends if you have no idea what i'm talking about i'm sorry for the tangent but if you do i'll post the 20 minute episode in the show notes I just, it's super weird and delightful to rewatch cartoons from your childhood, especially from the early 90s. Yikes. Anyway, nematodes in this study, not Doug, they were genetically modified to carry what's called a transgene for fluorescent protein. And a transgene in this case is a gene that was transferred using genetic engineering techniques. And when this protein was activated, this, these worms would glow under ultraviolet light. 
So they wanted to see if these nematodes would capture a change in their environment and then pass those changes in the transgene to their offspring. So they kept the, the nematodes first in a cooler temperature and noted that the worms hardly glowed at all. Then they moved the worms to a warmer temperature and they glowed much brighter, but then soon moved the worms back to the cooler environment where they noted that surprisingly they continued to glow brightly, suggesting that they were retaining this environmental memory of the warmer climate and that this transgene was still highly active. So then they also tracked the glow of their offspring for 14 generations, none of which had ever experienced warmer temperatures. And they found that the baby worms inherited this epigenetic change through both eggs and sperm. And I'll post, I'll post the study in the show notes. So yes, we're talking about worms here and it may feel like a stretch to say that ancient worm vacations prove that we have some that we carry some biological trace of our ancestors' pain. But I also strongly believe that we can't just wait for science to prove something before we contemplate its validity. I really do like looking at studies to see where things are going. But just like Carl Sagan said, imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. Again, so you can take that information or leave it if you like. I just thought it was interesting. But how it happens aside, let's talk about the issues that can be transferred from generation to generation and the complications that come up with that. Now, let's imagine that your uh, great-great-grandmother was horribly traumatized when she was a teenage girl. This is actually a true story. She was gang-raped in her hometown of Belize by a group of men. And after surviving the ordeal, she naturally wants to protect herself from this ever happening again, so she decides consciously to be more in her masculine and to exude more power and confidence and to do away with anything that she believed might have contributed to that situation happening. That might have been dressing very feminine, being friendly and trusting towards men, going anywhere alone, dancing or drawing attention to herself from the opposite sex. And this is all a pretty legitimate decision on her part. This is a strategy that she's developed to give her a perceived sense of safety and control in her life moving forward. Happily, she does end up meeting a man and they have a daughter together and a big family and she teaches her kids all of these lessons to keep her safe. She keeps her daughter from expressing her femininity and she suppresses her sexuality. She instills fear of unknown people and her daughter, who has no personal experience with the rape of her mom, gets all of this wounding. And that woman... That girl grows up to be a woman and she passes those lessons on to her children, either by actively teaching them these lessons or just passively as they observe how the main women in their life now are and then they mimic it or they use it as a baseline to see how a woman should be. And the cycle goes on and on and the culture is developed. The culture of their family is now developing this repression of self-expression and feminine energy. So now in their family, they don't dance and sing. They're safe and overly conservative with what they experience and who they engage with. And you can see how multiple generations later, it can get really confusing as to why you, without any awareness around the origin of this thing, have a hard time wearing a bikini at the beach, even though you want to. Or you want to be more flirty and fun, but you feel this shame and guilt around being that open. That's an example of this first level of collective consciousness at play. And in this case, it's ancestral wounding that's never been resolved. 
that's why shadow work is just so important. What we do today will be passed down for generations to come. You've heard that common saying, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Well, that also goes for inaction. So if you have a deep wounding pattern that you can't really put your finger on, that you feel like isn't yours, but you still have it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still bring it to the light and try to understand its root cause or just to get out of it because your kids or the kids you're around or the people that you're around may get this pattern from you and that cycle can continue. So how do you know if the conflict you're experiencing is heavy in that first layer, like heavy first layer vibes? This one is the most tricky and esoteric, at least at the moment, but you need to have awareness around your level of reaction and sense if it's coming from the consciousness of a victim group. So I'll give you a personal example. I used to get massive first level vibes when I would be in this situation. Perhaps any other women listening can relate to this. But let's say my husband and I are out talking to a man, someone we don't know. Maybe we're buying a car or it's just somebody at a party that we've been introduced to. And this man would only address my husband, Jeff. We'd be together and, you know, he'd just only be talking to him. I'd ask this guy a question and he'd answer me, but only looking at Jeff or he would ask Jeff to ask me a question when I'm standing right there. Like, hello, I'm right here. I know I'm half Korean, but I do speak English. <laughs> I would just get so pissed and like on behalf of all women, not just myself. I know that this conflict is collective consciousness heavy because The reality is I didn't really care. I don't really care if this random person addresses me or not. I have nothing to prove to him, nothing to say to somebody who doesn't really feel like acknowledging me. But it would make me angry on a whole nother level. And the memory of that insignificant interaction with this person would continue to piss me off long after that was over. And in my mind, it would always get so big, like on behalf of all women, screw men, And you know I have nothing against men. I have a business that works solely with men at the moment. But at the time, I was answering from a place of all women in my lineage and all repressed women in the world from this distant memory of things being really bad for us, but nothing in my lifetime. But still, it had this iron grip on me. Now, I won't say that the oppression of women is something I've completely detached from. I know that it's still there. But through awareness and even alternative healing modalities, I've learned to acknowledge it for what it is and not emotionally attached to that deep-rooted stuff. Now, you can release some of these ancient patterns with alternative therapies, like I had mentioned. You can see a generational healing therapist or even do a guided meditation on your own. There's a hypnosis meditation that I like by Joe Tracy, which I'll link to in the show notes. It'll have you imagining different scenarios that may or may not have happened in your lineage or past life. Now, I always feel the need to caveat that I don't know if any of this stuff is, quote, real, but whether it's placebo effect or whatever, it works for many, many people. Our bodies are smarter than we can even comprehend, and they store information in strange places. So while it may be more foreign to those of us in the West, you can just refer back to the billions of people who subscribe to Chinese medicine. They know and believe and have studied these things for centuries. Uh, You can also see somebody who offers EFT, which is emotional freedom techniques or emotional release. Our good friend Dr. Panko is based in the Ottawa area, and he's an amazing practitioner of emotional release, and it requires no talking on your part. He just somehow with his voodoo moves the stuck energy out of your body, and it's like very, very relaxing and clearing. And often people 
will have super vivid dreams after years of not dreaming, um, which is a good sign that something has moved around. Okay, now let's get into the second layer of conflict, which are energy patterns and universal polarities. So these patterns are created in your personal past when you're in your infancy, perhaps even during your gestation period, and it can go up to, I believe it's about five years old. And they're energetic safety strategies for times when you felt scared or unsafe. This is coined by uh, psychotherapist Stephen Kessler, who brought all these energy patterns together from the works of other researchers in his book, The Five Personality Patterns. And he does it in a very simple to understand way. These five personality patterns can be the source of a lot of our suffering because these old patterns of feeling and acting that have helped us survive the traumas of childhood get stuck in our bodies and shape how we are now. And he's really great at highlighting that these are just patterns and not personality types, which types suggest that that's how you should identify and that's how you are rather than patterns. You know, it's like seeing them as a form of behavior that can be changed. So I like that. And when I'm talking about traumas in your infancy, it doesn't even need to be anything big. It can be as simple as observing your parents raising their voices at each other or a door slamming or a dog barking. It's something that's happening that's shocking you or scaring you and you don't know what's going on. And as an infant, there's very little that you can do about it. You don't have a lot of options. You can't physically leave or physically protect yourself and you can't ask people what's happening. So the only thing that you have the ability to do is shift the energy through your body in particular ways. It's like the old adage goes, where you put your attention, your energy goes. So if something's upsetting you, you move your attention so it doesn't feel so bad. And so the way that the safety patterns are created is that first you are this little helpless potato and you experience this overwhelm and you want to try to stop it. So you try out some five different safety strategies. You see what works and what doesn't, and then you just repeat that successful strategy. And that strategy then becomes a habit, and then that pattern forms. Kessler says that everyone usually does two out of these patterns, which I'll go through in a minute. And the reason these patterns can become a source of your suffering today is when they're on autopilot. There are things that you do to feel safer when your ego is threatened or you are met with a conflict. And it becomes an automatic habit and a self-reinforcing loop. So you do it automatically when you're overwhelmed and doing anything when you don't know you're doing it and which is causing you a less than ideal experience. I mean, that's the shadow work definition. And so aiming to be more present rather than acting from a pattern is really the goal here. So by being present, you can deal with the situation elegantly and in the way the present situation requires. But we'll go through what to do about it more detail at the end of this um, episode. So I'd also mentioned they're self-perpetuating and can take on a life of their own. Our survival patterns shape our attention, which means that when you're in pattern, your reticular activating system lights up to those details around you that reinforce your propensity for that pattern. For example, if you're in a pattern that focuses on emotional connection, it makes you more aware or attentive to signs of attention or disapproval from somebody else. Or if you're in a fear pattern, it makes you more attentive to possible danger happening all around you. And so because our attention shapes our perception and our perception shapes our experience of reality and beliefs, all of this reinforces that 
yes, being in my safety pattern is good because look at all the proof that I'm doing the right thing. Look at all the danger around me. Look at all these moments of approval and disapproval. So you can see how um, being oblivious to your safety pattern, you're not experiencing the world as fully and as openly as you would want because you're just so tuned into what your RAS is allowing you to experience. Said another way, uh, people in different safety patterns experience different realities. So if you can get out of pattern, you can experience a more complete reality, which sounds better to me. (laughs) All right, I'm going to explain these safety strategies here, but they're a much easier thing to understand with the visualization from Stephen Kessler's website. So I'm going to post a link to that image in the show notes as well, or you can just Google five personality patterns click images, and you can see what I'm talking about. The first pattern is leaving. This is where you send your energy somewhere else. You mentally abandon ship or you physically leave the situation when you're able to physically move. And I can say that I confidently have this pattern or I do this pattern. When I'm sensing conflict, my tendency, my immediate safety pattern when I'm vibing low is to get the hell out of there. It's a pattern associated with having weak energetic boundaries. So if you're a highly sensitive person, then this pattern is probably something that you do. The next is merging. This is when you send your energy towards someone else, someone else to help you. It's like you're saying, this hurts. I'm scared and I need you to help me because I can't help myself and I need somebody to help fix this for me. The next pattern is enduring. This is when you move your energy in and then you ground it. So Kessler says this is common of people who have strong wills to do what they want but or do things their way, but they're not allowed to or are just restricted by some authority figure. And so it's it's where the strong silent type is born from. The person who's passively in a movable object and is trying to hide their energy and bury it underground so other people don't have to deal with it. Next is the aggressive pattern. This is when you carry your energy up and outwards, directing it at another person. And this pattern is also common among people who have a strong will to do things their way. But instead of the like the enduring pattern and enduring the other, they found there's this huge benefit for them in blasting it outward and disorienting the other person that's standing in their way. And the last one is rigid. This is also a pattern of mine. This is a pattern most common in people who have lived to perform to the standards of their parents and other authority figures. So it doesn't necessarily mean that your parents were authoritarian. It just meant that you found benefit in doing what the rule said and what you were supposed to do. Obviously, there are moments of of lashing out. There are in all of these. It's not to say that you're a perfect person, but it means you're very aware of what is what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. So your body sets up a series of ring currents in your body. And so by the time your energy is felt in your mind and you're able to conceptualize it, it hurts less. less. And it's called rigidity because the body actually does tighten and your muscles contract so you don't feel as much of that emotion. In Kessler's book, he goes through these patterns in amazing detail and even what combinations of these patterns may look like to you or for you. And if you're interested in this stuff, I would suggest getting his book, The Five Personality Patterns. It's a huge game changer. I mean, talk about shadow work. It's so crazy to think that we could be living as 20, 30, 40 year olds, 80 year olds and still be acting like we were when we were 
potatoes. <laughs> now, what I want to focus the rest of this episode on is what to do to get out of this this layer of conflict, this pattern. Even though I really do want to expand on all of those patterns, it's fun stuff. But really, the book will do a much better job than I can at explaining all of the awesome nuances and even the gifts and talents that you have with a particular pattern. Because just like this shadow work process that I explain, these negative patterns aren't always negative. There are awesome things that you can do with them and talents you have with them. So when you start doing any sort of self-discovery or inner work, you really first need to identify your inner witness and develop her or him. And the inner witness doesn't judge or comment on your experience. Its job is to record what you think and what you feel, what you say and do at the moment so that you can go back and then reflect on how you got from point A to point B during moments of potentially chaos and conflict, but even good times. It's just, it's a good way for you to reflect. And you may have heard me talk about pauses before. The inner witness activates during those pauses after the pattern has occurred. So here's an example. Let's say that you are happily remarried and a year in, you unrelatedly just bought a new pair of shoes and you come home and you show your wife and she says, oh wow, those look nice on you. How much were they? And you suddenly find yourself enraged and like storming off saying, what does it matter how much I paid for them? Why do you always have to ask that? And then you find yourself just way more pissed off than you probably should be. So what happened there? How did you get from happy about new shoes to smoldering about your wife's reasonable question? This is where you can ask your inner witness to play back for you all of the steps in between so you can see how you got from A to B. Maybe your inner dialogue was like this. I know I probably don't need these shoes, but they'll make training a lot better. But also, who am I kidding? It's not the shoes. It's my lack of willpower to go to the gym. So you're attacking yourself here. Then continuing on, she'll probably point out that I already have a pair of trainers and I don't go to the gym anyway. And then that's that attack on the other. And my first wife used to be so cheap and kept me from doing anything I wanted, which got me out of shape in the first place. And then she leaves me for somebody who's more driven. And now you're furious and lost in the past. (laughs) So at this point, you know, when your wife says they look nice, how much were they? You bite her head off and really not distinguishing her from your first wife and from your your original wounding there. And if you haven't developed your inner witness, you can see how you'll believe that the anger or fear you felt is caused by something outside of yourself, your wife in this case, about the shoes. And you start to look for evidence to support that or to validate that. But if you have the ability to go back through your own experience during that pause, you can realize that what angered you was hurt from the past and that the present situation only just reminded you of it. So with that, you can now know some important things. You're still hurt and angry about the past situation. You're not being hurt right now. You're caught in a reaction based on your past and the situation did not cause you to become upset. And so your inner witness then helps you, right, to learn something about yourself and come back to being more present in the here and now. So developing a strong inner critic is only the first step really in the right direction. You also need to develop basic energy skills. This is also in Kessler's book. Um, There are four of them that are needed for healthy adult functioning, and that's coring or centering. So this is the skill of holding your attention on and focusing on the center of your own body. It's what gives you a sense of self 
and it's required for referencing yourself and perceiving what you actually feel and you actually want. I practice uh, Qigong in the morning. It's a great daily practice for me to center myself and also meditation helps with this. The second is grounding. This is the skill of energetically connecting yourself to the earth. Having a sense of support physical and energetically, physically and energetically, literally with the earth gives you this sense of I am supported. And grounding exercises are often suggested to people who are experiencing anxiety, but they're great for everyone to do. This can be walking barefoot on the earth or doing the 54321 grounding technique, which is observing five things you can see, four things you can feel, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. It makes you aware of, of the environment around you and the groundingness that you have when you feel like you're starting to spiral. The third, we have edging. This is the skill of creating and holding an energetic boundary around your personal space. So I often do this when I, I'm in the presence of somebody who's particularly intense. And like I'd mentioned, like I admitted earlier, <laughs> I have I do have weak energetic boundaries. And so if somebody like even an awesome person who's just like really intense, I can get a teeny bit overwhelmed less now because I, I've i learned to be more fully functioning. But when I was younger, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's like hard to be with. I just imagine my edge or my energetic bubble and often I'll associate it with a color, like it'll be like a nice blue bubble around me. And I immediately feel less invaded by the incoming stimulus. I'm not checking out by any means, but I'm just being aware that this person is not invading me. They're just talking and it's not a thing. And then finally, it's me or not me. This is another skill here of distinguishing between what are your thoughts and feelings and what are other people's thoughts and feelings because if you have other people's feelings in your body it can be really hard to figure out what you actually feel so okay yeah those were the first two layers of conflict the two out of the seven and so in the next shadow work library submission I'm going to cover at least the next two which are personal historical pain and power control and projection As always, if you have any questions about what I talked about today or you just want to say hi, you can hit me up on Instagram at JessicaDepotsy underscore or you can email me at Jessica at TheSpecialForcesExperience.com. And if you're enjoying the show um, and the shadow work process, I would love a rating and review. Not only will my ego love it, (laughs) but it also helps uh, podcast syndicates see that it's a good show and it'll bump it up in the rankings so more people can find it. All right, y'all have a great week. Everybody stay safe, but not too safe. And we'll talk again soon.